the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. Women of the Treaty, Liz Gillis on the lives of the women who accompanied the Treaty delegation to London. Also, we visit Toronto to hear how Canada remembers the famine emigrants who settled there in the mid-19th century. Plus, the life of Ernie O'Malley, as told by his son Cormac, who joins me to talk about his new biography of his father and the man behind the iconic name. And we'll hear from Michael B. Barry, author of the new book Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. Now, we've talked a lot on the show recently about the male members of the Treaty Delegation Party, people like Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, Erskine Childers, Robert Barton, etc. There's our well-known names, but a lot less is known about the four women who accompanied them. Kathleen McKenna, Lily O'Brennan and Alice and Ellie Lyons were the plenipotentiary's secretaries. And we're going to hear now about these remarkable women and why they were chosen to partake in events that would change the course of Irish and British history. I'm joined by Liz Gillis, our researcher on the History Show and also South Dublin County Council historian in residence. Let's start, Liz, uh, with Lily O'Brennan. Tell us about her and her background. Yeah, so she was the oldest of the four women and her sister was married to Eamon Kant. Lily herself, she was a playwright and so on. But like, she's out in 1916. She fights in the Marable Lane Distillery. She's one of the 77 women that was arrested. So she's very much involved in a Republican movement from an early stage. She's in Clemenum Jail actually on the morning that her brother-in-law, Amy Kant, is executed. She's released hours after that happens. But then after the reorganisation, she's on the executive of Cumming and Mon. She sits on the Republican court. Um, she's very close to Erskine Childer. She actually becomes his private secretary. Jordan the treaty debate, she's his private secretary. So she's very much involved. Very experienced, as I said, and the oldest of the four women. Of course, Childers himself is secretary to the delegation. It's interesting to think of the secretary having a sec- having a secretary. <laughs> um, what about the sisters, uh, Alice and Ellie Lyons? What did they do prior to being chosen as secretary to the treaty delegates? Yeah, so Ellie and Alice. Ellie was the oldest of the two sisters. She's born in 1889 and Alice was born in 1893. Now, they're originally from Swords, but um, the family, they were running a boarding house in Dublin. And like a lot of women at the time, they trained as typists Ellie was really good at her job she won a silver medal for shorthand their family through their father they have connections to the Republican movement their father's cousin was Frank Lawless who had been out in 1916 he's later elected to the Dáil his daughter Evelyn she actually worked as a typist for Collins but in August 1920 she resigned from that position to become a nun so Collins needs a replacement and Frank Lawless suggests one or other of his cousin's daughters, Ellie or Alice. Now, the two of them were stenographers and um, very accomplished and it was decided, well, take the two of them. So the two of them joined Collins and staff in the finance section and all of these women proved their coolness under pressure, like right from the start there in the thick of it. And there was raids, if you can imagine, Dublin 1920, especially the military are looking everywhere for Collins. There's raids being carried out in all the offices. And in one such raid at number 22 Mary Street, the military come in, they counted how many people were in the building, but Alice saw a chance to get out. So she coolly walks past the military, she throws on her hat and her coat, walks past them, but then the British officer realises there's one person missing. Alice had gotten out and got word to whoever for Collins not to come near the place. But then the word went around that it was Collins that had actually escaped <laughs> dressed as a woman. <laughs> 
both Collins and De Valera, so are accused of having dressed as, as women during the War of Independence. And, and finally, somebody from my own neck of the woods, Kathleen McKenna. Who was she? Yeah, Kathleen was the youngest of the secretaries and um, she was from Old Castle in County Meath and came from a very, very Republican family. Our grandfather was a Fenian, our father was in the Land League, but the family moved to England in 1916 and she had connections with Ireland, especially with Arthur Griffith, because Griffith was actually a family friend. So she remembers him from when she was a child and she comes back to Ireland in 1919 on a holiday. And she makes contact with them in number six Harcourt Street, which was the Sinn Féin offices and so on, meets to Griffith. But at that time, you have the propaganda war sort of taking shape. And they were looking for uh, typists. They were looking for people to help print the Irish Bulletin, which was going to be the Republican news sheet to counter what was being reported in the media. So um, pretty much on the spot, she's told here, you know, set this, you know, <laughs> see if you can put it together. This is like our interview and she's responsible for printing the first ever issue of the Irish Bulletin on the 11th of November. So um, what turned out to be a holiday or started off as a holiday turns out to be this two and a half year journey of printing this bulletin in addition, was never stopped. She's printing it at night in our house. There's raids going on around the city and there's great descriptions in our witness statements of what it was like to be doing this at that time. So it's safe to say that they weren't just chosen for their shorthand speed, that they were chosen for their imperturbability as well. Oh, big time. These girls are proven they could actually act under pressure, remain cool under pressure, get the job done. And also they were trusted by the delegates. You know, Arthur Griffith knows Cantley McCann, he knows her lineage. Collins, you know, on the recommendation of Frank Lawless, he knows what Evelyn is like. The Lions girls, they proved themselves. And Lily O'Brennan, she has that, um, you know, she's out since 1916. She's involved with propaganda. So they've earned their stars, so to speak. Who were the two other women who accompanied the delegation? Yeah, it was um, Mrs. Eamon Duggan and Mrs. Fionan Lynch. Now, although their husbands are there, um, they're not just there to accompany their husbands. These were four young women that were going to London. You know, you had to keep an eye on them. So they're actually, they're chaperones while they're there. <laughs> OK, we're going to hear now Kathleen McKenna's own words describing her preparations before going to London. This is from her memoir, A Dull Girl's Revolutionary Recollections. How could I get a wink of sleep that night, excited and happy as I was? How could I convince myself that it was really true and not a figment of my imagination that I had been chosen by the leader of the plenipotentiaries to accompany him to London as his personal secretary and, at the same time, to continue my duties as secretary to Desmond Fitzgerald? Had I packed everything I would need into my suitcase? Would the taxi call for me punctually to take me to Westland Row? Or would I reach Dun Leary only just in time to see the mailboat sailing out of the harbour? Some of the recollections there of Kathleen McKenna. When the delegation arrived in London on the 8th of October, they got an extraordinary reception. And uh, Kathleen also describes this in her memoir, Liz. She does. And it's so vivid. Like, um, if you can imagine what had been heard and what they might have been expecting, you know, going to enemy territory. But, oh, there were crowds waiting at Euston Station for them when they arrive. And uh, as Kathleen says, it was an unforgettable welcome. But people are there 
They're singing the soldier song, they're waving tricolours. She says that the king and queen had arrived at Euston Station about half an hour before. So the people that were there to welcome the king and queen stayed on to welcome then the treaty delegation over. And there were so many people there when they got off the train. They're literally whisked off their feet to the cars. And then they're led by a piper's band. So slowly they're making their way through London until until they reach Hans Place. She describes it so vividly and was amazed by the reception that they got. Now, obviously, the press was out in force. Lots of photographs of the plenipotentiaries arriving during the negotiations. But there was quite a bit of press interest in in the women as well, wasn't there? There was. And we're very lucky that there's lots of photographs of the women. Now, you don't see the four of them together. So Lily, maybe because she's the older of the group, a bit more reserved. So you see Lily with the actual group, the posed group photographs of the delegation. But the really relaxed photographs are of Kathleen, Alice and... And Ellie. And the thing was that, again, Kathleen in her book, it's a great book, she talks about them being mobbed by the press. So the press are waiting for them. They're coming out of mass one day and they're making their way to Cadogan Gardens. And the press are waiting there, photographers, journalists. Next of all, there's even a cat that appears and they're saying, look, this cat represents the look of the Irish. Here's the cat. <laughs> and there's a photograph and they're there and they're looking at the cat and the cat then appears in a number of photographs. As Kathleen says, the cat became friendly to them. So it appears everywhere. But you have that interest, not just in the men, the politicians, but also who were their support and the girls make the newspapers. We've been talking to Dr. Dara Gannon uh, since this series started about the treaty negotiations, but he's also talked about the social side of the of the treaty negotiations. Was there a social side for these uh, young women or did their chaperones make sure <laughs> they went nowhere? No, and this they did have a social life. Granted, it was restricted, as in they hadn't got a lot of time for social, you know, events. But Arthur Griffith insisted that they do let their hair down. Now, the thing is, they're working seven days a week, so they had to take it in turns to get the Sunday off and they do their shopping and they go and get their hair done. Arthur Griffith would bring them to the theatre. So they saw like there was some ballet. They met like loads of people from the literary world like Lord and Sani um, and George Bernard Shaw. So they're, they're meeting all of these people. There were dinners held that they went to. So they do manage to enjoy themselves. It's not party central all the time. Kathleen, her favourite pastime was to go to an underground rifle range where she says she became quite an able markswoman. When Collins heard about this, he started to slag her and she got really upset, so much so that she started to cry. And then Collins becomes upset because he is after upsetting her. So to make up and apologise, he gives her a present of a tiny Webley revolver, something similar to what he would have given Erskine Childers. Right, OK. Um, now, it, Collins could be a bit of a lad. Um, he was known to be known to be quite boisterous. Did he behave himself while he was in London? Did the rest of the delegation, the male members of the delegation, behave themselves while they were in London? Not all the time. I suppose you have to think, and remember that Collins was um, quite young, but where you have the treaty delegation there, you also have Collins' support going over with him. So Liam Tobin, Tom Cullen, Emmett Dalton, all of these guys that he'd been operating with in Dublin during the War of Independence. And there's one event, they have a party in Hans Place um, that he'd organised for all sort of like the supporters of the delegation, the London Irish organisation. So it's a big do. And Kathleen again talks about because they're there witnessing what's going on. Um, the menu, she actually has a thing in the menu, it's great. And um, just to read it out to you here, Miles, some amongst the courses were peace and publicity soup, 
economic cutlets, <laughs> minced Ulster and roast beef of old England. Now, the desserts, the sweets were Gertie, Ellie, Alice, Kathleen and Lily and the chaperones were the cheese course. Um, <laughs> No, but then Collins arrives at this party and with Mara Tobin and Cullen and Emma Dalton and all and of course, you know, they're lighting the mood and stuff and Collins starts to get boisterous. So what started them throwing cushions at each other moves to them throwing food at each other and ends up with So there's throwing, a bread roll war, basically. Yeah, but then ultimately it ends with them throwing coal at each other. So they're taking coal out of the coal bucket and slinging it at each other. <laughs> While this party's going on. Okay, well, I suppose they have to let off some steam. Um, Now, the treaty signed on the 6th of December, it leads to an infamous split. It leads to to civil war. How did this affect the four women? They were obviously four very political women. Did they take different sides in the civil war? They did, just like the men. The women were split on the issue of the treaty. Um, Now, Kathleen, Ellie and Alice all support the treaty. Um, Lily she rejected it. You have Kathleen working for Pierce Beasley in the censor's office. Now, Arthur Griffith, he sort of loaned her to Pierce, but Kathleen was so good at her job. Arthur Griffith wants her back as his private secretary. And you have this tune and fro, and Pierce Beasley won't give her up. And Arthur Griffith has to say, I'm taking her. She's mine, basically. Alice and Ellie, they most likely would have worked with WT Cosgrave, very close to WT. Lily, she continues to work for Erskine Children's. Now, she's really active on the anti-treaty side. She's running the foreign chapter of the publicity department, all the international propaganda. Um, She's arrested during the Civil War. She ends up in Mountjoy Jail, Kamenum Jail, the North Dublin Union. She takes part in, like, in attempts to escape out of the North Dublin Union and she's eventually released then in 1923. What did the four women do after the Civil War? What Tell me a little bit about the rest of their lives. Well, Lily O'Brennan, she wrote plays and short stories and she was a founding member of the Catholic Writers Guild. She wrote an account of the War of Independence entitled Leading a Dog's Life in Ireland. She never married and she died in 1948. She's buried out in Dean's Grange Cemetery. Kathleen McKenna, she married uh, Vittorio Napoli. He was a captain in the Italian Grenadier Guards in the 19, and they married in 1931. They had two children. Kathleen wrote so many articles and items for loads of different publications, Caption Annual, for newspapers. She even recorded two broadcasts for Radio Air and they were broadcast in 1952. So she's writing all over the place. She died in 1988. Ellie, she married uh, John Keevy in 1930. They didn't have any children. She died in 1973 and she's also buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery and tragically her husband only survived her by three months. She died in the April and he was dead three months later. Alice Lyons, uh, she went back to work as a civil servant. She never married and um, she died in 1974 and she's buried in Glasnevin. Fascinating stories. Thank you very much indeed for bringing those stories to us, Liz, um, and the, the part that these amazing women played in one of the most important moments in Irish history. Most people will be familiar with the Irish Famine Memorial in Dublin's Docklands. The famine statues on Custom House Quay were presented to the city of Dublin in 1997. You might not know, though, that there's an almost exact replica of these statues located on the shores of Lake Ontario in Erin Key in Toronto. 
Officially opened in the summer of 2007, Ireland Park commemorates the tens of thousands who fled Ireland during the Great Famine. Our reporter, Mark McMenamin, found out more. In Toronto, Canada, on the shores of Lake Ontario, lies one of the most powerful memorials to the Irish Famine in North America. So Ireland Park is a memorial to the famine, chiefly, and to Irish immigration that occurred in 1847. So it's just this amazing kind of basalt monument that they've created, marking and has all the names of, I think it's around 800 Irish people who died actually in Toronto as a result of ship's fever or typhus. This is historian Jared Ross, a native Torontonian with an interest in the Irish famine. And it's just as very evocative. You're right on the water. You're overlooking Toronto Island. And it's very evocative to be kind of in this windswept landscape and imagining people coming off these ships, usually in horrendous conditions, and then being ferried up the foot of Bathurst Street to what were called the, the immigration hospital, the immigrants hospital, but colloquially known as the fever sheds. Claremont Pasheen is a lecturer in St. Michael's College in the University of Toronto. According to Pa, the memorial in Toronto is evocative, not only because it is almost a direct replica of the monument in Dublin on Custom House Quay, but also because of its close proximity to the water in Toronto. I think you know, being by the water, similar to the one in Dublin, and even if it's not the Atlantic Ocean, it's Lake Ontario, I think that the water is significant in that focuses on the Irish that would have had to travel across the Atlantic Ocean to get to Toronto in the first place or to get wherever, you know, in Canada, vast majority of people came through Quebec City and through Gros Seal and then to work their way down to Toronto. Like, even today, that would be a nine-hour drive on highways. So, you know, I can only imagine how long it would have taken them. The influx of people was continuous. Many of the immigrants brought religious tensions from cities like Derry and Belfast with them to Toronto. A quarter of the people who came to Toronto were from the north. And there are success stories. There's many success stories in the 1850s and 60s of Irish Catholic politicians, Irish Catholic businessmen, newspaper editors. But there's also a little bit of tension between them and the you know, Protestant and sometimes Anglo-Irish or Ulster elite. There were a lot of those families in Toronto as well. So by the point that in the 1850s and 60s, Toronto is also known a little bit as you know, the Belfast of North America. Because there are a few riots and uh, civil disturbances, shall we say, in the 1850s and 1860s because of some of the tensions in the communities here. Despite the religious issues, Pa believes that the Irish diaspora have had a very positive effect on the history of Toronto. We always like to portray that we've done, we like to portray the two of them, don't we? The, the, the ones that did very well and the ones that didn't, I suppose, fare so well. But there's always great stories from the two. We seem to have had a massive impact on the city, like uh, Toronto, from what I'm you know, I'm only living here a short period of time, a year and a bit, but, you know, it was known as the, kind of the Orange City or, you know, similarities to Belfast, I suppose, because of the, the dominance of people of British ancestry and being, a, you know, so close to the US border, but, you know, a place of real defiance, you know, looking back at the War of 1812, I think, and things like that. But there's no doubt about it that the Irish have left a lasting impact on Toronto and that still exists. And I'd like to think that my generation are contributing to that in a positive way at the moment as well. According to Jared, Ireland Park is a fitting tribute to the Irish, not only in Toronto, but in Canada as a whole. And, you know, Ireland Park is an amazing monument to that and to the legacy of a year where 
38,000 Irish sufferers from the famine arrived in a city where there were only around 20,000 people. So when we think of that, and we talk about refugees and refugee crises today, to think of, you know, it would be the equivalent of a million people showing up in Toronto today, uh, needing somewhere to eat, somewhere to stay, a job, being not in tremendous health. So a really tremendous monument. And that was Mark McMenamin reporting from Toronto on how Canada remembers the famine and the Irish people who emigrated there to escape the great hunger. After the break, Cormac O'Malley joins me to talk about his new book about his father, Ernie. Ernie O'Malley went by many names. He was known at different times in his life as Ernan O'Malley, Bernard Stewart, Cecil Edward Smith Howard, or simply General. He was a medical student, a revolutionary, an intellectual, an oral historian, and a gifted writer. Many books have been written about his life, many books that focus on his role as an IRA volunteer and his activities in the War of Independence and Civil War. And while this period of his life is obviously important and iconic, it was only part of that life. Tonight, we're going to hear about the man behind the iconic name. Ernie O'Malley, A Life, is a new book written by Harry F. Martin, together with Ernie's son, Cormac O'Malley, who joins me now. Cormac, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Pleasure. Now, lots of books written both by your father and about your father. He's one of the most extraordinary chroniclers of the War of Independence. What were you and co-author Harry Martin attempting to do with this particular book? Well, the book starts off with uh, Harry was inspired, I guess, by a lecture I gave. And then he sort of said, this is just a magnificent character that uh, fits into the Hemingway, the the General Grant. And uh, he was just inspired by the character. And the more and more he read, I then gave him a couple of books and he said, "Okay, we're going to have to do a book about this. So he got inspired and it was a, a hero worship to start off with. And I had to calm him down. I said, look, if we're going to do, he asked me to do a biography with him. So I said, well, if you're going to do a biography, let's make it non-academic, more personal, and sort of telling the layman's story, the version of Ernie O'Malley. So basically, he agreed to do that. And uh, I brought out all of the, the new materials that I'd done in 1970, interviewing people. So I had, I had that available. And so I think uh, what we tried to produce and did produce was a, a very human story, personal story of Ernie O'Malley and, and his family. Let's talk about that family because his early life, he didn't, he came from a large family, not actually a very nationalist family. So just tell me a little bit about his mother and his father and and his siblings, because his siblings kind of divide between siblings who joined the British Army in World War One and siblings who are associated with the national movement. A very fascinating family. Yeah, well, I mean, it sort of starts with Luke Malley, who is a bright young fellow, not not a particularly nationalist, who grows up as a far, son of farmers down in, in Ballyglass, not too far from Castle Bar. He's a, a local, uh, gets his education and sort of stops at age 13, 14, but he's asked uh, to, to stay on as a monitor. And as a monitor, you know, you're in a good position to then get a job because clearly you're identified as a smart fellow. He goes into Castle Bar, gets a law clerk position. So law clerk positions are not something, you know, you want to be fairly conservative and and dot the I's and cross the T's. So his life was that way throughout. He didn't want to cause any ruptions. 
And he lived in a house, three-story house across from the RIC. And he got a job in the basically the British Civil Service, came up to Dublin and worked in the Congested District Board. And again, didn't want to rock the ship. And so he raised uh, children to be in that manner. So as you said, it was no surprise that two of the sons went off to join the British Army. Why? Well, it was, you know, 1914, it was unemployment. This was a good opportunity. You could help support your family. And why didn't Ernie O'Malley go on? It wasn't because it was a big nationalist. He got a scholarship to UCD to go into medicine. So, you know, to save the family money, he got education. But there are a couple of things behind that. He'd already uh, gone to CBS school, and CBS was a good nationalist school. They were independent of the British-led educational system, and so the brothers could uh, have their own books for what they wanted their children to read, their pupils. And so, no doubt, he was uh, inculcated in part uh, by the nationalism from, from the schools. And then in 1916, that background suddenly came to a spark with reading the Proclamation of Independence. Tell me about his involvement in the 1916 Rising, because to some extent, or I think to a considerable extent, it was he was freelancing, really, wasn't he, as a, as a volunteer in 1916? Yeah, you could say he was a casual nationalist. He went down to college that morning, though there was no college, it was a holiday, on Celia Street, where down in Temple Bar, and went over to see some friends in Trinity, and they sort of said, why don't you join us, we'll give you a gun, we don't want to be caught up in this Sinn Féinor activity. And he said, well, he had to uh, go home for his uh, dinner. So he went home, and on the way home, he met a fellow who was an art student. Uh, God bless the art students. Anyway, he said, uh, why would you join Trinity? Uh, They're not not us. So you'd be firing on your Irishman. Anyway, as it turns out, he went home, had his dinner. Uh, There was a very careful curfew in the Malley family, and the family name is Malley, it's not O'Malley. So he climbed out uh, the back room of the second floor and climbed down and met up with a friend and started, um, he had a rifle, Mauser rifle, and started shooting down on the uh, docks. He had not uh, joined the Irish Volunteers. The Malley family around uh, the uh, dinner table would have mocked the green uniform of the Irish Volunteers. And so I often say they don't, we don't even know if they would have supported home rule. As long as he had his job, it wouldn't really have uh, impacted things. Then he does join the volunteers and very quickly, at a very, very young age, becomes a military organizer. One of his jobs is to train volunteer units. That wasn't a particularly comfortable experience between, you know, 1918, 1919, before the War of Independence actually gets underway. Well, what happened in 1916, I mean, he went back to the university that next week, started winking at fellow nationalists. So the trend grew. They started doing, uh, going to Cayleys and activities. And finally, uh, you know, he gave up his medical studies in, in March 1918 perhaps because he hadn't completed the exams or whatever, but he goes down to the headquarters of Michael Collins and, you know, question, how many people were there in the headquarters at Collins at the time and what to do with Ernie O'Malley? So they sent him up as an organizer to help Richard Mulcahy, who was up in Coal Island at the time, and father started marching people around and doing things. 
It was early days on the role of the organizer, and bit by bit, the headquarters developed the idea that they could have these roving characters who would go into brigade areas and help train them. And, of course, you would be training at the company level, at the battalion, at the brigade level, all of whom uh, had never had experience organizing these types of things. So it was really important to have the organizers uh, sent by headquarters. There was always a tension between the local people and the headquarters. You know, is this a spy? Why is he coming to... Why does he make us work? Why do we have to do notes? What's all this lecturing stuff? We want a revolution, you know. So they don't really buy in readily, but the senior managers on the local brigade would have... Uh, But the farmers had a great difficulty, you know, being paraded around by a university student. Now, you you mentioned youth. I mean, everyone was fairly young in that. I mean, if you look at Michael Collins' age, I think he was only six years older than my father. So everyone was really, really young. And and indeed, the younger you were, the the better chance you had been of active. And if you do a roll call as to the older men in the IRA, uh, they may not have been willing to be as active as the younger men. So, yeah, he had that role for four or five years. He still has that role, obviously, during the War of Independence. And however uncomfortable it might have been prior to the War of Independence, it became even more uncomfortable during the War of Independence himself. I mean, that comes across in the wonderful book on Another Man's Wound. I mean, he literally did not have a shirt on his back. Yeah, he, he tells us a beautiful uh, section in the book where he describes uh, where his hat were, where his trousers were, and the trousers was for someone quite large, should I say, so they had to put the big belt on to hold it up. There's always a marvelous description of him in the book as to what he really looked like, and he would have had on his back you know, a knapsack, and he described what the pens and pencils and compasses he carried his office around on himself. And uh, that was a great burden and a great weight. And f- clearly he got quite physically fit by doing that. And he remarks that the other men could go home to the local homes and sleep, and he had to sleep in somebody. And every three weeks, uh, you know, he'd be off to an, a new assignment. So it was a truly, he refers to it as a crusade. Now, one of the most harrowing sections of On Another Man's Wound is where he is captured and he is arrested. Tell us about what happened to him when he is uh, when he's taken prisoner by the, the Crown forces because he is subjected to horrendous torture, basically, that, that he had to live with for the rest of his life. Uh, he, he was sent by Mulcahy to take the uh, Black and Tan, newly created Black and Tan uh, headquarters down in Inishtig. And while he was preparing to do that, he got captured and uh, caused uh, great difficulty for the Kilkenny Brigade members because he had his notes were captured. But he was also captured with a gun and equipment and maps, so those people knew that he was up to something. So he was almost shot right there in Kilkenny before he was. Uh, some general interfered uh, with the, what was going on, and he'd been hit with the with the bayonets. His feet had been trampled, which impacted his uh, lifelong period of of walking. Anyway, he was sent up to Dublin Castle, and there there was uh, Captain Hardy and Major King. And they had already, uh, three weeks before that, taken care of Clancy and and some other fellows in the same room. And they mentioned that to Father. So, do you want to end up like them? 
So they had a series of sort of tortures and interrogations uh, asking him what his name was, and he gave his name as Bernard Stewart. And they put the red hot pokers on his eyebrows and singed his eyes. So in later years, when he was driving the car at night, he couldn't see, he had to stop. And they also, Hardy went over and said, well, I'll teach you now, and answers the question three, two, one, and shoots a, a blank pistol into his head. And needless to say, that was torture for a certain way. How did he escape? Well, uh, they couldn't get anything out of him, and uh, eventually they just threw him out from Dublin Castle out to Kilmainham. And uh, Michael Collins knew that he was uh, had been captured and then got informed as to where he was. And Collins and uh, the 4th Battalion of uh, the Dublin Brigade set up a process of whereby they got to know the j- two of the jailers, British uh, Welshmen, who proactively helped uh, Father get bolt cutters into the jail, a pistol into the jail, other uh, ammunition, other armaments. And uh, he eventually broke out. Uh, Paddy Morn did not come with him, but Frank Teeling and Simon Donnelly and he all escaped on uh, Valentine's Day, uh, 1921. And that's how he got out. He took the anti-treaty side during the Civil War and uh, he was arrested. He he spent time in a, a free state jail as a guest, if you like, of the of the free state government. He was also shot a number of times. Tell me briefly about his Civil War experience. Yeah, so, in fact, uh, he was uh, appointed the director of organization because of his knowledge of the country. Very good decision and, and that's something that he could have been good at in uh, March 1922, and then uh, the anti-treaty lads took over the four courts in April, and he created his own office up there. And eventually, since he was, uh, you know, the senior command of the IRA at that time didn't have much actually active service and knowing what to do. So he was appointed to be in charge of the defense in case the four courts got uh, attacked. And ultimately, he was the man who surrendered the four courts after everything collapsed. And on his way toward Mountjoy Jail, they put him in the Jemison Distillery. And he he and Sean Lamass and a couple of others managed to escape through a side door very quietly. They interrupted the manager and said, excuse me, we're going to go this way. That's fine. You know, they he didn't know what was going on. And so he escaped. And the sad thing, and one of the many sad things in the Civil War is the senior management of the Republican side were all caught, captured in the forecourts. And so it was only men like uh, Liam Lynch and uh, Ernie O'Malley, whose only responsibility had to run a division. Big difference between running a division and running a war. And uh, neither of them had ever had what you call headquarters experience and how to handle artillery and uh, ships and finance and all these things. And I'm sure Father was uh, pretty bored by all of that. He eventually got into the O'Reilly's sister's house in Aylesbury Road. And at some time, the uh, Free State found out that he was there. And November 4, they surrounded the house and uh, captured him after a fairly bloody event. And the newspapers of that Saturday, November 4, sort of said, a movie should be made about this because it was attacked back and forth. And eventually, uh, you know, he had uh, nine bullets in his body that day and was uh, he wasn't shot or executed because he was still so sick. 
Where do you stand on the issue of the blowing up of the public records in the forecourts? Your father has been accused of having mined that part of the forecourts specifically, and he's also been accused of having triggered the explosion that destroyed hundreds of years of, of public records. Other people say nothing to do with him, that it was blown up by a, a free state shell. So you know, where do you stand on that controversy? Well, I, I think, you know, I just look at look at the facts uh, quite dispassionately. And uh, when the buildings were taken over, uh, they were smart enough not to put the munitions in where they were living. And so they looked around and they found uh, a place and that had a basement. So they put them over in the records office. Now, the records office was one of the first buildings uh, which was captured by the Free State. And uh, the Republicans sort of withdrew back into the central spot. And eventually, you know, the dome collapsed. Uh, John Reagan has done an excellent uh, story on a timeline almost as to how that retreat into the central part and what the role of the Republicans was. I think uh, John's point was... We actually don't know how it exploded, but we do know that the free states started to approach from that Western perspective into the records house. And at some point with, during that bombardment, you know, the explosion occurred. It is tragic for Irish history, and I'm so supportive of the cause, which is trying to reconstruct all of the records for that house. And hopefully within another 10 years, we'll have that. Ireland wasn't a particularly warm place for anybody who had fought on the Republican side in the uh, Civil War. Many left the country, many left for America. Your, your father ends up in America, but he, he goes to Europe first. Tell us about what he did there. Well, yes, as people were let out of jail, I think you know juniors were let out first and the seniors were retained. He wasn't let out until July 1924. The senior men and many others had gone on a 41-day hunger strike. So when you combine his ill health from uh, the wounds with a 41-day hunger strike, he was in no condition to do anything. And the rationale for the delay of release was that he might start another war. Anyway, so uh, take the facts. He gets out of jail, goes home. Though he's still a member of the IRA and attends at least one of the uh, meetings of the IRA council, Basically, he's so sick that he just has to, he's advised to get out of Ireland, and he gets uh, money from the White Cross and goes to Europe to recover. He's, at this time, he has a bad heart, and he ultimately, he dies of, of heart failure, and he goes to Spain and starts uh, rebuilding his life, and he comes back a year later in 26, tries medical school, is still having a, a poor academic experience. And um, de Valera asks him, uh, along with Frank Aiken, to go out to America to uh, fundraise uh, for a paper, an idea he had that we want an independent nationalist paper called the Irish Press. So Father goes out and lectures on the east and west coast and eventually falls off that bandwagon after they had created, a, I think, uh, up to $500,000 was collected. And by that time, you're right. He doesn't want to come back to Ireland. He's had a haunting time. He's a, a ghost figure. No one's going to employ him. You know, his brothers uh, can't get their medical jobs here and go to London. And so he just stays on in America. And 
he has the idea of writing his memoirs. So, you know, a lot of his uh, comrades, uh, O'Connor and Ophelon and others, were already writing. So he decides, well, he'll, he'll write his memoir. And that's how On Another Man's Ruin and The Singing Flame were, were written. And in the course of that, of course, he met a lot of intellectuals and people in the Irish and the artistic community. And he was a very versatile fellow, partly because, you know, we've often referred to uh, these periods of imprisonment as a, a time of improvement or, or a university. And so the reading list in, in my book, uh, No Surrender Here, that of the book sent into him by his advisors uh, is a university course. And so he's well up to discuss arts and music and literature uh, with people he meets in America and Mexico. One of the people he meets in America is a sculptor, Helen Hooker. That was in 1933. They married in 1935. The marriage didn't last, but in that early period, were they very much kindred spirits, do you think? Indeed. My mother was a prominent Connecticut family, but she was not a great student, did not want to go to university, told her father that, give me the money to be the artist that I want to do. And part of her inhibition was because she was stuttered. She could create things with her hands, but not with her, her mind and express it in a written form. So she was smart, but she just couldn't do that. And so she knew and she traveled broadly in art. And when she met this uh, Irishman who also had traveled broadly and knew about art, he could express to her what the sort of the university cultural course of, of art. And they sort of fell in love over that whole artistic world. He had collected photography in Mexico and New Mexico. Uh, she was a photographer, a sculptor, a painter, uh, a carver. And, you know, one of the surprising things to me was that when I figured out why didn't he marry one of the common and the mon people, you know, that were all after him, quote unquote, um, she, my mother wasn't. It was it was helpful not to have that in his life. Uh, he didn't he'd had that and it was past. So he wanted a new life in the arts. And he was quoted as saying, my life will be in the arts in them lies happiness. And so as he comes back to Ireland with modernist ideas, he and my mother are able to come into an artistic community and falls readily in with a Jack Yates and Mamie Jellett and Evie Hone and people of that, that ilk. And so he creates on a whole new life for himself, a different image, different persona than the military person. Now, the military person certainly helped my mother because she was the wife of Ernie O'Malley. But uh, she was a person who uh, stood on her own feet and did her own art and was in the first exhibition of uh, living art in 1943, 44, 45, 46. And she had a one-man show in 1950 and uh, several shows after that at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. And so, you know, she had her own integrity and stood by him herself. Your father had many famous friends, including the legendary Hollywood film director John Ford, or Sean O'Farna, as he often liked to be called. They worked together on a number of projects, most notably, I suppose, the film The Quiet Man. I think you, your father was particularly proud of his association with that wonderful film. Yeah, I, I've never, you know, I must have seen the, the movie once, but I never asked him about it. I would say he would have been proud of the friendship, 
But, you know, one of his roles was an IRA consultant, both in that movie as well as The Three Leaves or a Shamrock, which came out in 56. Both of them, there was an IRA role. But I don't think, I think Father must have cringed at the role that ultimately Hollywood imposed on John Ford uh, to represent the IRA in the movie. So sort of discount that part. But his role of friendship with John Ford uh, was legendary because he was uh, not in the employ of Ford and he could walk away. I mean, who else could walk away? Uh, The producer, the director, the actors? No. Only Ernie O'Malley could walk away, turn his back on him. And so he did once or twice and there was some tension. But ultimately, he realized uh, he was a good friend. And, and, you know, the fact that he blew his stack was just his temperament rather than his intention. And so he would go back and, and help him. So they had uh, a great life together during those, uh, you know, a movie takes about two months. So I remember it well because I was there. Now, what are the things that he's most noted for and historians are very, Irish historians are very grateful for, is his work as an oral historian, the interviews he recorded with veterans of the Irish Revolution and veterans of the Civil War. Thanks to you and University College Dublin, these are available for for people to read. But what's particularly striking is he didn't just interview one side of the Civil War. He interviewed men that he had fought against in the Civil War. That suggests somebody who wasn't bitter. Would, Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the premise that uh, was Ernie Malley anti-British, and this came up, I remember, in conversations, he said, no, and and in in his writings, he said, I'm not anti-British, it's just I don't want them in Ireland. And so the same thing uh, about the free state would, he said, you know, they made a mistake. I never heard him say that we made a mistake. But, you know, in his letters in that book, uh, No Surrender Here, that this great correspondence with Molly Childers. Ultimately, you know, Molly Childers is trying to shape Ernie O'Malley as a new Erskine Childers, going to go into politics and one thing or another. And Ernie just decides that that role is too much for him. He's not a politician. He was a military person. The military has failed, and so it's up to a new generation. And so I see that as a takeoff into his new life. He's trying to recover, he's reading his books, and he's, he's intent upon where he's going in the future. So he, he basically gives that life up. Well, the book is called Ernie O'Malley, A Life by Harry F. Martin, and my guest Cormac O'Malley is published by Merrion Press and is available in all good bookshops. Cormac, thank you very much indeed for coming into the History Show and uh, talking about one of the, if not the most extraordinary writer of the Irish Revolution and the Irish Civil War, your father, Ernie O'Malley. Thank you very much. Thank you, Miles. After the break, we'll hear from Michael B. Barry, author of the new book, Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. Stay with us. We're going to talk now about fake news in an historical context and in an Irish historical context. It's a phrase that's become hugely popular, I suppose, in recent years. But it's nothing new, as we'll hear during the War of Independence. British press officers experienced in producing World War I propaganda practice the not-so-subtle art of disseminating falsehoods. I'm joined by historian Michael Barry, author of the new book Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. 
And Michael, fake news is not, it, it's not a new concept. It's not even a 20th century concept, as you point out in your introduction. It's been allow- around for millennia. Give us some almost archaeological examples of, of fake news, if you would, first. Yes, Miles, they actually are a bit archaeological. Yes, uh, fake news has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It goes with human nature. And just to give you a few examples, back in 34 BC in Rome, the wealthy patrician Octavian mounted a campaign of disinformation against his rival, the general Mark Anthony, who was then in dalliance with Cleopatra. And um, Octavian succeeded and became the, the first emperor, the Emperor Augustus. Another example was during the Spanish Armada in 1588. The chief advisor to Queen Elizabeth I forged a letter purporting to come from a English Catholic priest, which told, expanded about the losses of the Armada, and it was intended to dissuade English Catholics from supporting the Spanish cause. Another example is when actually the British were the target during the American War of Independence, when Benjamin Franklin produced a forged supplement to a, a newspaper which, which had falsehoods about the British. And the term itself, well, the first time I've seen the term fake news used was in an 1894 edition of an American magazine called Puck. There was a cartoon showing a newspaper tycoon with newsmen running in with sensations and scandals. And one of them bears the newspaper with fake news written on it. Now, when it comes to the War of Independence, I presume the British forces or the British authorities would have been emboldened by the success of their disinformation efforts in, in World War One, where they, let's face it, they beat the Germans into a cocked hat without American or, or French aid. Tell us about some of the stories they were putting out during World War One. Yes, they were very expert at that. It started in September 1914. Lloyd George was very worried about the propaganda from the Germans, so they set up a war propaganda bureau. And this produced a stream of books, pamphlets and articles, and actually using the new medium of cinema as well. And it was a giant publishing house, and they churned out propaganda, giving their, their side of the story. The United States was very important to them, so they had set up a special information bureau in New York, and they channeled reports to about 500 newspapers. They paid surreptitious subsidies to newspapers, including in Latin America and Greece. And interestingly, they had suborned Reuters, which was purportedly an objective international news agency, but it was receiving subsidy from the British, as well as the Marconi Radio Company. Uh, They were really, really good at propaganda, whereas by contrast, the Germans were a bit cack-handed. They just didn't have the the knack of propaganda. In fact, the British, uh, an early case during the war was when the British nurse Cavill was executed by the Germans for spying and they made great uh, play of this. And at a later stage, an American reporter had an exchange with a Prussian officer who said, why didn't you you know, play up the same for some German nurses who on the same grounds were, were executed by the, the French? And... Um, I have here the phrase, why didn't you raise the devil about those nurses the the French shot the other day? What? Protest? The French had a perfect right to shoot them. So it illustrates how how the Germans had a very bad attitude if liked the propaganda. It just wasn't in their nature. 
And then later on, of course, various German generals pointed out the effects of propaganda and, in fact, one proven expert in the use of malevolent falsehood, if you like, in other words, Adolf Hitler in his Mein Kampf said that the anti-German campaign of the British was, and I quote, an inspired work of genius. And he concluded that the propaganda by the enemy, the British, has been regarded as a weapon of the first order, while in our country it was the last resort of unemployed politicians and a haven for slackers. <laughs> when it comes then to the War of Independence, the British are they're on the back foot when it comes to intelligence. They're also on the back foot when it comes to propaganda. So how do they set about trying to turn the tide, in the latter case at least, in terms of propaganda? Yes, it happened in the early months of 1920 when... The British were reeling under the attacks of the IRA on the RSC, and that led to the recruiting of the Black and Tans and then the Auxiliaries. And there was a shake-up in Dublin Castle and a whole lot of new personnel were brought in. And under Hamer Greenwood, the Chief Secretary, there was a press information bureau set up under an experienced newsman called Basil Clark. But as well as that, under the... General Tudor, who's in charge of the auxiliaries, they set up an information bureau of the police authority. And that brought in some captains, Captains Pollard and Darling in, in particular, who had been quite expert in propaganda during the First World War. Captain Pollard in particular was a very colourful character and he had been behind the biggest hoax of the First World War. That's the corpse factory story. This is the story that the Germans were boiling down the bodies of, of exactly. soldiers to make glycerol. Yes, and, and Pollard, who is based in a shadowy intelligence section dealing with propaganda, MI7B, claimed that he was behind this uh, story, which was picked up by the respectable press, by the Times and by London and New York Times and caused an absolute scandal because people believed it. And in particular in the Oriental countries and in China where they had believed in ancestor worship and this was scandalous and the, at the time the, the allies were, were trying to bring the Chinese into the war on their side but anyway back to Dublin Basil Clark the head of the PIB under Hamer Greenwood in Dublin Castle he believed in bending the news but he kept a fairly even line but in the public information branch with Captain Pollard he was behind the creation of the, the weekly summary, which is aimed at the RSC. It was a weekly newsletter at the RSC, but also, of course, available to the press. And it came out with outrageous material, including incitement to the police to carry out atrocities. And they reported like-minded newspapers like the Morning Post, such things as the Anti-Sinn Féin Society in Cork had issued a notice saying that if any member of the Grand Forces were shot, then two Sinn Féiners would be shot. And a lot of the output of the weekly summary actually caused outrage in the House of Commons with opposition. The Republican repost to the weekly summary, even though it actually begins months before the weekly summary, was the Irish Bulletin. To what extent was the Irish Bulletin similar to the weekly summary or to what extent did they actually stick to the facts and was it a more reputable publication? Well, I guess in terms of physical output, pretty similar. They're both 
fairly basic publications, just newsletters. The Irish Bulletin, produced by the Sinn Féin Department of Propaganda, was a mimeographed publication. started off very small, but they generally stuck to the facts and they gave Sinn Féin's views and they exposed the activities of the crime forces. And, uh, you know, as the atrocities increased, uh, they had quite a lot to, to tell. Over time, they established what you could say was a gold-plated circulation list. It was sent to the opposition in the House of Commons. It was sent to the senators and congressmen in America and to opinion leaders in European capitals around the English-speaking world as well. And for a brief period, uh, Hugh Pollard was actually running both the weekly summary and the Irish Bulletin. Tell us, it didn't last long, but tell us how that happened. No, it didn't. No, no, no. I think he he was somewhat of a a Biggles character Mm. and was always ready for a jolly jape, if you like. And it so happened that the auxiliaries raided the then offices of the Irish Bulletin, which, of course, moved from about 20 different locations during the War of Independence. And they confiscated the mimeograph machine but also the circulation list. So Pollard and his colleague produced fake copies of the Irish Bulletin and it was filled with sort of nonsense saying that the Irish public supported the RSC and it also tried to discredit Sinn Féin by saying, please come in with falsehoods to us so we can publish them. In other words, trying to imply that Sinn Féin were mm. coming out with falsehoods. But it was very soon found out Somebody in the in opposition MP in the House of Commons said to him or Greenwood, the chief secretary, you know, don't, please don't waste your money sending me any more of this nonsense. And uh, the real Irish bulletin continued and they, had, they placed a little green stamp saying official version <laughs> after that. So the, there were only a couple of uh, editions, fake editions of mm. the Irish Bulletin. Um, one of Pollard's, it turned out to be unsuccessful in the end, but uh, you, you know you have to pat him on the back for, for effort. And that was the, the concoction of the, the, the so-called Battle of Tralee. Now, there, there yes. was actually, there was a basis to it. There was a background to it. There was fighting. But explain uh, what actually happened happened and what was the reaction to the concoctions that Pollard came up with? Yes, just to explain that, yes, at the beginning of November 1920, there there was a lot of uproar in Tralee itself. The IRA had captured two RSC constables and then the auxiliaries were going through the town and burning down buildings and so on. But it so happened that there was a press junket organised on the 10th of November, set out from Dublin with Pollard and a colleague from London, two journalists and two cameramen, accompanied by two crossly tenders of auxiliaries. On the morning of the 12th of November, there was a encounter between the RSE at Ballymacallagut, which is just outside of Tralee. There was an exchange of fire with the local IRA active service unit, which left two IRA dead. And then in the afternoon at around four o'clock, Pollard and the press party showed up. There were still some IRA there and there was an exchange of fire. But the whole thing was not really a battle. It, you know, it was a fairly commonplace skirmish. And uh, a cameraman was observed working his camera. And then a few days later... Pollard and 
his colleague arrived back in Dublin Castle and they were told by Mark Sturgis, who was an assistant under secretary there, who wrote a particularly racy diary. And he noted in his diary that uh, he told Pollard to give some red-hot witness accounts of this. And so a few days later in English newspapers and in such as the Illustrated London News, there were photographs appeared showing dead bodies lying around, auxiliaries running up what they call Sinn Féiners. And a few days later, on the 27th of November, the Irish Independent published a photograph of the scene as in the Illustrated London News, along with a photograph of the very same scene at Viker Road in Killiney. And uh, the whole thing was exposed. A staff photographer of the Irish Independent had spotted that the lamppost in the picture from his knowledge of Trilly, there was no such lamppost there. And then, of course, there was outrage again in the House of Commons. There were questions, did the government provide these vehicles, uh, these Crosley tenders and so on, for this fake photograph, and which was denied? And then, later on, in the beginning of December, a nationalist MP related how there had been a showing of the newsreel and how in one of the shots a corpse was seen to move and the film was withdrawn at that stage nobody really believed the output of dublin castle because of this extreme falsehoods that they were emitting they had lost credibility it's pretty clear from what you're saying that britain did not win the propaganda war did that actually shorten the war itself It was part of the reasons for shortening it. And there was, of course, the military campaign with the continuous pinpricks of the ordinary ambushes by the IRA, plus the spectators such as the Kilmichael ambush and the burning of the Custom House, etc. But to my mind, what really caused the maximum pressure on Lloyd George to agree to talks with Sinn Féin was the continual seepage of the news of the atrocities in Ireland you know, during 1920, you had reprisals all over the country where Crown forces burnt down towns and cities. And then from the beginning of 1921, many of the reprisals became official. And that seeped through, and particularly into places like America, where Britain was extremely sensitive to pressure from America. And it cut across the whole self-image, British self-image of, you know, that the empire stood for fair play and justice. And to my mind, that was one of the key factors in forcing the British to come to the negotiating table. And then, of course, which led to the truce of 11th of July in 1921. Well, we'll have to leave it there. The book is called Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. It's full of great images to illustrate this aspect of the uh, the war itself. And I'm sure it would be a particular interest to residents of Tralee and uh, of the Vico Road in Kalini. It's published by Andalus Press. It's available from books.ie and all good bookshops. The author is Michael Barry. Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we have time for on this season of The History Show. But I'm glad to say we will be back sometime in the new year with more episodes. Our reader tonight was Kira Clancy. My thanks this evening to Jamie Doyle and Kieran Cullen on sound and to our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and have a very happy Christmas. 